Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, C4. Really glad again that you're joining us this morning on this Palm Sunday. And again, a huge hey to our online audience, wherever you might be in the world today. We're glad you're joining us uh, this morning. Well, today is the last in our series, uh, Back to Basics in Romans. And so if you've got your Bible, hard copy, if you want to turn to it on your uh, PDF, that'd be great. We're going to be in Romans chapter uh, 16. About a month and a half ago, I Twittered and then put on Facebook that I had done something significant. I had violated one of my core values as a human being. I had compromised, I had fallen, and I was publicly confessing this fall. I declared this. I had bought a minivan. <laughs> yes. To me, the minivan is what is wrong with the world. At least it was. Minivans declared to me that they were utilitarian. They declared that you were, no offense to all of you, old. To me, they declared something that I didn't want to be. Minivans, when you purchase one, I think produce what psychologists should call a mid-midlife crisis. We're not talking about what 60-year-old guys go through. I'll get there eventually with some of you. This is different. This is what 30 to 35-year-olds go through. You buy a minivan and you are declaring to the world these truths. It's not about me anymore and I hate it. I want to be cool, but I'm not cool anymore. Yes, I have children and I need to talk about them. And yes, I have a bald spot growing at the back of my head. I am becoming my father. (laughs) A minivan is the beginning of the end. Now, if you doubt me, talk to anyone in my age bracket who does not own a minivan and has more than two children, especially the men, you will see the reaction I am talking about. And so it came home in all of its white beauty and I drove it, and I drove it, and Gary Powell mocked me, and I drove it. So I'm here this morning to declare that, hi, my name is John Thompson, I own a minivan, and I love it. Oh, yes, I love it. My life has changed since this thing has entered into my life. It's like salvation in a different way. There are these things called bucket seats. Do you know about them? They are bucket seats, and it's like my daughters can't touch each other anymore. The United Nations has moved into my life. They're not fighting anymore. And then there's this technology called a DVD player, and it's installed in the roof, and it comes down, and then there is this beautiful thing called silence. Now, yes, Dora is on it. She continually affects me, but it's worth the silence. But the greatest thing about my minivan are these doors that slide. I can go into my garage and there's no more hitting of the doors. I can get my girls in. It has been a life-changing event. See, what I thought was an end point for me has become a brand new beginning. See, the Toyota ads, you know, the Swagger Reagan, they were right. They were right, if you know what I'm talking about. This has been an exciting thing. And as I reflected on Romans 16, I said, you know what? Culturally, many of us, if you're a Christian or you're hanging out with Christians and you open the Bible up every once in a while, we treat passages like Romans 16, like I did a minivan. 
It's boring. It's not, it's not exciting. The spirit doesn't come down. It's old. It's utilitarian. It's one of those passages, blah, 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 all these names, boring. I want to get to the good parts. But when you actually take the time to stop and you sit in it for a moment and experience it, something happens because Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful, not some. And truthfully, it is this. Like, I wrote off the minivan. Most of us in our Christian life write off passages like this because they're too difficult or boring. And yet, the Spirit of God cries out this morning, read this too. What you think is an end actually is a beginning. Today, like I said, is the last in our series, Back to Basics. 23 weeks we have listened, been challenged, rebuked, encouraged, strengthened by spending time in this world-changing letter called Romans. God was mentioned 153 times. The call for Christians to be changed or to be was used 113 times. Paul cried out again and again, listen closely, that right relationship leads to right thinking, which leads to right practice, all done in heavenly given right power. It was that old evangelical Anglican thinker, G.I. Packer, who wrote these words about Romans. If there is one book in the New Testament which links up with almost everything that's in the Bible, it's Romans. Paul brings together and sets out almost in a systematic fashion every great theme of the Bible. Sanctification, sin, law, judgment, faith, works, grace, election, the plan of salvation, the work of Jesus, the work of the Spirit, Christian hope, the nature and life of the church, the place of Jews and non-Jews in God's plan, the philosophy of church and world history, the meaning and message of the Old Testament, the duties of us as Christian citizens, the principles and, and the personal call for ethics. And you see, from that vantage point given by Romans, the whole landscape of the Bible becomes open to us. And so now we come to the end of this grand letter. And how does it end? With more theology, with more brain-teasing, uh, heaven-given truths? Not overall, there are a few. Paul ends where we all must end and where we all will end. People. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus call Paul? Why did Jesus die as so brilliantly painted by Brandy today? Why do we exist as a church? Why does any Bible-believing church exist? People and relationships. Christianity at its core is about the re-establishing of a relationship between God and us and God and each other. All of creation will one day be redeemed, a new heavens and a new earth, to eternally facilitate what was lost in the garden so long ago, walking with God and each other in the coolness of the day. All of Romans was written to introduce people to relationship with God and then others in his family, and then to support, build, encourage, and protect that family. And so we should not be shocked that the end of this letter is about what matters, in chapter 16, the word greet appears 19 times. There are 33 names, 26 individuals, two families, three house churches all mentioned. And maybe, maybe, just maybe this morning, this is going to change your image of Paul if you have one. I love what Ken Hughes wrote about Paul this way. We don't normally think about Paul as a people person. 
We naturally assume that though he was a great man, his greatness made him a forbidding companion. Having read through Romans and knowing his massive intellect, most of us would feel somewhat intimidated if we were were about to spend an afternoon with him. We'd probably spend the day brushing up on memory work, wading through the minor prophets, or clarifying some point of theology, or probably doing a confession or two. No doubt such time would be well spent, but our fears, by the way, are unfounded. Paul was a people person. And here's something that a lot of people that like Paul don't get. Paul never determined his friendships on the basis of other people's intellectual capacity or even their theological ability. Now I want you to think about this as we get into this today. And you, wherever you are today, do this too. No Twitter. No Facebook, no email, no cell phones, no landlines, no phones, no paper as we know it. There are no big pens to be found, no mass-produced pencils, no global mail systems, stamps don't exist, no printing press. I think I covered every generation there, right? Okay. And yet, amazingly, Paul worked hard at community without all the advantages we all have sitting here at this moment. So here's the question we all need to think about today. How committed are you to Christian community? Priority or option? Look at Paul today and then look at your life. He was busy. He was distracted. He was sick. He was shipwrecked. He got beat up for his faith. He traveled the world and yet he never ever gave up on Christian community. And it was never an option for him. I'm just saying this morning, why is it an option for some of you? All the excuses you put to the table... He had them hands down. The beginning of the end starts like this in Romans 16.1. I commend you our sister Phoebe, a servant at the church of Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including, by the way, me. Now Phoebe, by the way, means pure, bright, radiant. She's called sister, servant, saint, and she's called a great help. Now, before we keep going today, that word servant right there is important to camp out on. It's where we get our word in church circles, deacon or deaconess. Now, all of us are servants with each other, no doubt about it. But this is connected to a local church. This is a title. This is a formal title and position. And so, understand that Phoebe was a deaconess. Like you can read in Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3, Stephen and Philip were deacons too. They took care of the financial and ministered to the needs of the poor. They also evangelized. They did miracles. They preached in public. And so Phoebe is a deaconess. And amazingly, I never caught this before. She is actually the one bringing this document to Rome. Paul says, now welcome her, everyone. Take care of her needs. She loves Jesus, the church, and me. Take good of care of her. She's an awesome woman. Paul continues in verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches made up of non-Jews are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Now, they met Paul in Corinth after they got kicked out of Rome for being Jews under Claudius. Later, they they come back and, and they establish this church. You can actually read their story in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 16. So now they're back in Rome and they've got a church meeting in their house. They're really wealthy. But a lot of people believe they weren't just the hosts of the house. They were a husband and wife team working as leaders in that church. Paul goes on to say hi to the first person he led to Jesus. 
then to Mary, and then in verse 7, it reads like this. Greet Andronicus. I worked on that one this week, by the way. And Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Jesus Christ before I was. That little phrase, outstanding among the apostles, I just want to camp there just for a moment. Some authors, and even translations, you may have the ESV, this is one, that just, they say that this just means that they were really liked by the 12 disciples, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, but I actually think they got it wrong. The NIV, the New Revised, the New American, the New Jerusalem, just to name a few, say it this way, they were outstanding among the apostles. They were apostles. Beyond the 12, capital A, there were lots of small A apostles. And that simply means one sent officially on church business with authority, an evangelist, a missionary, or it can just mean leading with authority. Some of you are going, uh, yeah, thanks, John, falling asleep, Junius, whatever. Why does this matter? Well, this is why it matters. Junius can be translated male or female. But in this case, the linguistical evidence is actually this is a woman. Most like this is a husband and wife team, again, like Aquila and Priscilla. And the reason why it's important is this is saying that a woman has been given formal authority to minister, like a missionary or evangelist. Now, you can't base your whole view of women in ministry on Romans 16, like Phoebe or Junius. We as biblical Christians, first of all, have to take all of our views from Scripture, not culture, not what we feel, not our background, Scripture, And we need to see this in the light of Scripture. Yet this does show us three key things this morning. First, more than one-third of Paul's greetings are to women. Six of them are commended for their labor in the Lord. The same language is used by Paul for Timothy and Titus as church leaders in his other letters. My own experience growing up not in Canada but overseas tells me that most churches are run first, supported by and birthed by women, always first. And we men catch up, well, later. The second thing is this. This gives us strong examples of women in some formal roles, not all, in the church. But this is the most important thing this morning. Everyone listen. This is a Romans 14 issue. Remember what I just taught a few weeks ago. Beyond the essentials of our faith, many genuine Christians disagree on things like women in ministry, spiritual gifts, communion, church government. And by the way, it does matter. Now, again, these issues can be looked at and defended from Scripture. And so, like I shared, I'm not an Anglican or a Pentecostal because I don't agree with them on secondary key issues. But they're my brothers. They're my sisters. I'm going to get used to them now because I learned that I'm going to spend eternity with them. So why not start now? That's my opinion. They're my family. Yes, absolutely. No, no, you should clap. That's right. They're my family. But we here at C4 are going to preach strongly with conviction our views on secondary issues, but never ever be disparaging towards those we disagree with. The great phrase that needs to be recaptured by churches like ours is this again, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. In translation, in the things that bind every Christian together, we will never compromise. Jesus is the only way. The Trinity is the Trinity. The Word of God has authority, etc., In non-essential issues, we're going to have liberty with each other. We're going to choose to disagree with each other. But here's the key thing. We're not going to be jerks about it. Charity. And so, when we read Romans 16 and all the other passages, we here at Crothers believe that women can hold any position except elder. Now, if you want to explore that, struggle with that, wrestle with that, you can read our DNA document. But when you do it, no matter your opinion, I want to remind you, unity 
liberty, be nice, okay? Because again, we have a stance, we believe from Scripture, but it should never divide us at our core. So we see these two profound examples. Well, Paul from there does some interesting things. He says hi to over 20 people and other families. Now, if you take time today to read each name, name after name after name, and if you learn how to pronounce them, I am almost willing to guarantee you God is going to give you a much larger Easter bunny this week because I couldn't do it. Or maybe a new car, I don't know. But he lists all these people. Now, again, like I said at the beginning, we tend to skip over parts of the Bible like this, and we tend to forget that these people were real. We're going to spend eternity with these people. They were the backbone of our movement in the early years. But there's so much more here if you take the time. If you read the whole chapter, Paul chooses to be with, to live with, and to embrace diversity. Men, women, slaves, the wealthy, the poor, brand new Christians, long-term Christians. Some of them loved Jesus before he did. Some of them were relatives. They were Greek and Roman, Jew, slave, and free, and they were every skin color under the sun. The point is this when we read this passage. The church is called to look like this globally and locally, especially in a highly urban, multicultural environment. There is no room for racism in the church. There is no room for classism in the church. And if Paul shows us this by his list, alone we should be convicted. As one rightly preached, Paul's list of greetings reflect his vision for what a local church should look like. A congregation should be no less diverse than the community surrounding it, yet unified by a singular devotion to one person, Jesus. At the end of that amazing list of people that we'll all meet one day if you're a follower of Jesus, then he says in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ and greetings. Now some of you are getting nervous right now. You're going, is John going to pull off a weird response where we all have to kiss each other at the end? Others of you are very excited by this verse. Some of the young are young at heart. You want to make this your life verse. No. This is the normal way of greeting in that time. Handshakes for us or hugging in Latin French culture, kissing on the cheek, is the symbol of just saying hello. But it also is the symbol of mutual acceptance. If you've ever been to a Roman Catholic service before, just before communion is served, you will greet each other with the peace of Christ. In Eastern churches, they still kiss on the cheeks, I believe. That experience that's become ritualized dates all the way back to this. Now, it's only cultural. Paul is not mandating that we all must kiss on each other's cheeks. But it goes beyond culture to motive. Chuck Swindoll, I think, got it right when he wrote these words. More than anything, this practical greeting is difficult to do with people that we're at odds with. I can shake hands with anyone, but there's no way I can kiss the cheek of a person I barely know. I'm less likely to kiss someone if I don't respect them. Paul's command would be a powerful motivation for me to keep my relationships clear and close. He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And then in the middle of all these greetings and hellos and be nice and what's up, suddenly, one last time, Paul addresses the dangers of division and false teachers for every church, which he's dealt with time and time again from chapter 1. Read along with me. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way. They're contrary to our teaching that you've learned. Keep away from them. 
That little phrase, I urge you, has only been used twice in this letter. The call for personal holiness and the call for intercession. Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, everything that's been done for you, live your, live your life in this way. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Dave last week preached out of Romans 15, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. So when he uses something very few times, we need to pay attention. Paul says to us at Crothers Creek this morning and to the many of you watching or listening, I urge you to keep in the teaching you've heard. Don't go to the left and don't go to the right. Verse 18, such people are not serving the Lord Christ but their own appetites. Smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Now, the question is, well, what false teacher is he dealing with? There's lots of them. Well, I think we get the clue from the word appetites. Remember, we shared this at the beginning of the series and some others. There were groups of people in the early movement called Judaizers. They said, oh yeah, we believe Jesus is Savior and Son of God, and we believe you have to love Him alone. But by the way, you have to be completely Jewish ritualistically too. You have to get circumcised if you're a guy. We all have to obey all the commandments, including all the dietary laws. And if you're Jesus plus all this, then you're a real Christian. Paul says, excuse me? I think it's Jesus plus nothing equals Christian. He said it in Romans 14.30, do not destroy the work of God over food. And so he is addressing a group of people that are continually trying to burden down people with something that is no longer needed. He says, be careful when you ever hear someone say it's Jesus plus equals. Well, Paul then says, hey, everyone, I've heard about your obedience. Verse 19, I'm, I'm so full of, of joy. I want to be with you, and I, I, wa- I want you to be wise about what is good, and I want you to be innocent about what's evil. You know, the word wise, we say it like that and we move on. Do you know what wise means? Putting into practice what you know is true. He says, I want you as a Christian not to hear alone, but to do. And then he says, I want you to be innocent of evil. I learned this week that the word innocent has its roots in the idea of a wall that actually is protecting a city and it's actually gone through a horrific siege and the wall survived. He said, I want you to be innocent of evil. Don't flirt with sin. Don't play around with sin. Run from those things that destroy your soul and violate the relationship you have been given. And I say to you this morning as one of your pastors, your personal holiness, my personal holiness, your beliefs matter. They together form the fabric of this community. Jesus says to us now, be innocent. Run from evil. Don't flirt or enjoy with sin. The battle is tough. It is difficult and overwhelming. But then Paul says to us, hear this this morning, God is sovereign, and the hope that you are fighting for is about to take place. And then he utters these beautiful, profound, life-changing words. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen? Oh, yeah. We need some Pentecostals. Amen? Yeah, thank you. Huge statement. God will soon give power and victory not only over satanically inspired false leaders. It's more than that. This is the grand promise for all of us as Christians. Not only will one day death and sin be removed explicitly from the created order, Satan's influence, dominion, presence, and power will also be removed. Was this not hinted at at the very beginning of time when the demonic took ground that we gave up? When Adam and Eve sinned and we sinned in them? 
in our worst moment ever as human beings, as the human family, even at that moment, our God was planning redemption, and this victory was promised. Genesis 3.15, prophesying Jesus and Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That's what we're going to celebrate on Good Friday right there. Jesus, by his incarnation, his passion, his resurrection and ascension, has already broke the power of the kingdom of darkness. 1 John 3, 8, the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Colossians 2, 15, having disarmed powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, overcoming them by the cross. Satan does not, nor will he ever truly win. Victory was snatched from him at the cross, and Revelation 20 declares to us that those that have sworn allegiance to him will be thrown into that everlasting place of separation called hell. Our God is in control. Well, after this, mm, for us, his challenge, his commending this church, he sends greetings again. He loves people. He sends greetings from all these people, including someone you may know named Timothy. But after a whole other set of greetings, in verse 24, we now come to the real end. And the end isn't about Paul, it's not about the church, it's not about a theological checkup. It ends with hope, and then worship, and then ends with God's glory. And it reads like this. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. That little phrase this morning is so important for us. For him who is able to establish you. Establish means to prop up. This is the promise. If you've embraced Jesus, he will prop you up the rest of your life. I remember in high school, people mocking me. Oh, you're a Christian. Your dad's the Pope. Your mom's a nun. I said, how did I get here? Anyway, um, I was totally confused. Uh, you know, people mock you for your faith. And that's fine. That's fine. And, and, and one guy said, I'll never forget it, grade 11. He says, John, I will never become a Christian. I said, why? It's all about a crutch. I don't need a crutch. I said, well, I do. I need a huge crutch because I know what I am. He says here, God is going to eternally prop you up so you will never truly fall again. And this should not shock us after reading and accepting Romans. It's God who predestined us. He called us. He foreknew us. He loved us when we were dead, disconnected, not even looking for God. We were spiritually hostile towards God. What's the verse we're going to talk about next week? And This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and died for us. I mean, what did Paul say in, in Philippians? Being confident of this, he who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you've run from Jesus, by the way, Good luck. He's coming anyway. And he's going to complete what he started in you. Because once he gets his hands on you in love, he never lets you go. He loves you too much. And so again, Paul says time and time again, my gospel is not about me. It's not about my theological textbook. It's not about my cultural biases. It's not about my race. It's about Jesus. And so he ends Romans by saying all praise, all glory, all honor is due to him. I love how Eugene Peterson renders this in the message. All of our praises rises to the one who is strong enough to make you strong, exactly as he preached in Christ Jesus, precisely as revealed in the mystery kept secret for so long, but now an open book through the prophetic scriptures. All the nations of the world can be known, can know the truth, and can be brought into obedient belief, carrying out now the orders of God, 
who got all this started down to the very last letter. All our praise is focused through Jesus on this incomparably wise God. Yes and amen. See, that's the way a book should end. And Paul says, from beginning to end, it's about Jesus. So as we come to the end of this series, I need to give you a few thoughts and then uh, we'll be done. What is the living Jesus of heaven and earth wanting to declare to you personally today or to us corporately? A few things as I wrestled with them this week. Number one, I do want to spend a few moments talking about false teachers. We all need to be watching. Hear me, please. This, hear me, please. We all need to be looking. When I or Dave or anyone else preaches up here, you need to be praying and discerning too. When you're listening to a podcast, a webcast, when you're reading a book, you need to be watchful without being, though, argumentative. Is what I'm hearing violating our most holy faith? Is this a primary or, or a secondary issue? One pastor gave four simple questions to ask, and I think they're great. Number one, does what I'm here agree with Scripture? Just for my reading from it, any flags? Number two, does what I hear honor my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? From what I'm hearing and reading, is this uplifting Jesus or someone else? Third, does what I'm hearing help me become more godly? What I'm hearing today or whenever, is it helping me becoming more like Jesus or not? And here's the last one we fall down a lot, especially in evangelical circles. Does what I'm hearing cause me to think more highly of my fellow believers? Uh-oh. When I turn on WDCX, number four doesn't happen very much. This is the point that we need to be serious about. Our world, our web, our lives, our families, our stores are full of many, 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 many voices. But most do not speak for heaven. Am I saying everyone in WDCX, by the way, was a false teacher? No. But I'm saying we have a temptation in this one to go sideways. Be watchful. In your responsibility, don't become jaded. Don't always look for a fight. Always nitpicking. Always thinking there is a false teacher. But realize that there are and you need to be ready. But don't make an honest disagreement between faithful Christians. This thing, because it's not the same. Always remember, if someone says it's Jesus plus something to equal salvation, you've got a false teacher probably on your hand. Watch out for false teachers. Here's something I think even more significant for many of you today. I want to declare to you today again as one of your pastors that God knows who you are and what you do even if others don't. Many of us in our dark moments wonder if all of this is worth it. Church, serving, relationships with other Christians, blessing those who curse us, the list goes on. We struggle and yet we're not acknowledged or thanked and we wonder if all the years have even made a difference. Lots of sacrifice and little change in people's lives and yet I want to remind you today that God knows everything. He sees all and he will reward all. We can serve and give only based on fruit and get real discouraged, or we can steward properly. Stewardship in the Bible, giving money and time and service, is not about fruit in the end. It's about one thing, faithfulness. As Paul, as one wrote, Phoebe was a unifying force in the church near Corinth, and someone who, called, who was called by the Lord to bring this amazing letter, but we don't know anything else about her except that. 
Many others were noted for their faithful labors. We know nothing about them after the name. Priscilla and Aquila, yeah, they met Paul in Corinth. They helped him in Ephesus and Rome, but we don't know anything else beyond those brief acknowledgments. Then there's 27 names, right, representing countless others, and then whole churches, and we're never even told their name, and yet they enrich the body of Christ. St. John, well, what's the point this morning? Here it is. Don't give up. Don't forget that all your unseen work will be honored by the one that matters in the end. When all time is past, the only thing that will matter is what you've done with Jesus and for Jesus. You will not care about any other person's opinion. You will not care about getting your due when you face Jesus. All you'll want to hear, all I'll want to hear is this, well done. So call on him to keep going. He is the one that will prop you up again and again. The church is made up of normal, faithful people that history is going to forget. Here is the terrible, terrible truth for us this morning as North Americans. Are you ready? Within three or four generations, no one is going to know any of us. And if you want proof, please stand if you know your great, 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 great grandfather by name. No one. Yet we live in a culture that says, I have to do something. I need momentum. I need monuments. I need to be remembered. And I'm saying to you this morning, don't waste your time. Because the only thing that lasts is what you do for Jesus. And Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. And though we're all going to be forgotten by each other and by our relatives, guess what? Jesus isn't. And he rewards those that are faithful to him. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life trying to be remembered. Just be faithful. We don't know the millions of Christians that have gone before us. And they're not probably going to know us. And so Paul comes to us in Romans 16 and says, Be careful, false teachers. He says with authority, Please, please realize that God is faithful and he will honor you for what you've done, whether you are known even now or not, in small or large ways. I end with this. People. Don't miss that Paul loved and fought for community this morning. We cannot give in and use church. We can't wait for others always to set us up on relationships to do church. We can't come one or two out of six Sundays and never be with other Christians or never serve with others or never do small group or eat with other Christians and expect for a vibrant Christian life. Community, hear me this morning, must be fought for. As another Christian leader said, all people want to do is leave a mark, like I've mentioned. But what remains? Money doesn't remain. Buildings don't remain. Books, after a certain amount of time, whether long or short, all will disappear. But the only thing that remains forever is the human soul, the human person created by God for eternity. And the fruit which remains then is that which we have sowed into the human soul. The challenge out of Romans 16 may be like an ambush to some of you is this. Paul knew community. Paul fought for community. And do you know why I know this? Because he knew people by name and he had ongoing relationships with them. You who are families of my age with younger children, if you choose now not to make Christian community a priority, your children will not do it either. We live busy cultures. Trust me, I'm one of you. But not at the expense of Christian community. As a youth pastor, I did it for a long time. 
I had so many teenagers say to me when they were 17 or 18, I'm out. There's a lot of reasons. One of the main reasons was this, though. My parents never made church a priority, so why would I? And then I'd have the parents come in and say, what have you done to my children? And I'd say, I didn't lead them away from Jesus. You did. Make a decision. It is a prophetic decision in this culture, in the frenziness of trying to do everything. Fight for community. You who are retired, God bless you. Man, I want to be retired. God bless you. Enjoy the cruises and the golf, but not at the expense of community. For all of us sitting in this place, understand that Paul knew people, had relationships with people, never ever treated this like a gas station where you'd fill up and walk away. He fought for community because he understood you can't have Jesus without his body. There's a challenge to us today to make sure that our priorities are right, that we have relationships, that we don't know everyone by name, we don't have to be friends with everybody, but we do some Christian community. It's an ongoing commitment simply because whether we're excited or sad or burnt out or disenfranchised, we understand that faithfulness in the end produces a faith that lasts. And our world, like I've shared before, is desperate to see long-term, faithful, unjaded Christians. Romans 16 says to us, my friends, family, first and foremost, hear these words. You are loved. You will be propped up, and the God who deserves all praise is with you. He says, be careful of false teachers. He says, they're real, they're dangerous. Think about them, pray, walk carefully. He says to us again this morning that I am going to favor you and reward you for your service done in my name. And then he says, do not give up on relationships, because when you do, you walk away from the one you supposedly love. Let's pray together. Jesus of Nazareth, you're good, you're godly, you're, you're awesome, you are fierce, you are difficult, and you are close, and you are far away all at once. And yet, this church, and we as a group of people this morning, just want to say we love you, and thanks for what you're doing in our life. Thanks, Lord, for a lot of people hanging out with us here and online that don't know you yet, but are asking the honest questions. I pray even today that they would meet you. If that's you, just say, Jesus, I, you know, I, I do want to meet with you. I want to turn from sin, embrace you, be changed. I say yes to you, Jesus. But for many of us who've walked for a while, just a few things, Lord. Number one, help us. Prop us up. We need for our survival in our faith to be propped up by a force that is stronger than us. Lord, I pray you'd guard this church from false teachers. I pray you'd guard me and and all my friends from legalism and also from licentiousness, living like hell though we're going to heaven, help us to walk in life. I pray also, Lord Jesus, that this church more and more would reflect what this community looks like and you'd keep to changing us, whatever the cost. A few other things, Lord, too, we, we pray that, I pray specifically, there's a lot of people, I'm sure today, who feel like giving up, they don't feel honored or thanked enough or they don't know if it matters. Spirit of God, I humbly ask you as one of your servants, would you tell them you're pleased? Please, I ask this. And lastly, I pray that you'd help me and us as a community and those here and online to fight for community in a world that 
is just frantic and frenzied. Give us relationships. Help us to forgive and bless and all that stuff. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is forever praised, who's called us, who sealed us, who died for us, and who loves us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.